It is so good to be with you here tonight. This is amazing. I'm so happy to be here. I just love this. And I'm delighted with the series you've been doing this summer, Jesus in the Old Testament. Such an important way for us to think that we don't just parachute into passages in the Bible, unaware of where we are in the Bible when we do it, but how good to to get a sense of the gospel and Jesus throughout the Bible, because that's actually how he viewed the Bible, which is very important to see, which is one of the main points I want to make tonight. If you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, we have an amazing Resurrection Day story here that's just a phenomenal story. It's as good as stories get. Anybody who thinks the Bible's boring, I think, must not have actually read it or just doesn't understand it, or or something, because it is the most thrilling book, and fascinating, and insightful. I've never read a book that explains the human condition, our problems, gives us solutions to those like the Bible. So I'm deeply thankful for what the Bible offers us. But this this is a story about the morning Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the grave, and it's a powerful picture of two of his followers who are confused and bewildered and discouraged because they're just not sure how to make sense of all the things that have happened. They were following Jesus, and then they come to find out that he's put on a cross, and they're not sure what to do with it. So I just want to read the story together with you, Uh, and as we do, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us life and light, food for our souls. Lord, thank you that it is the primary means the Spirit uses to soften our hearts and bring us to Yourself, like we heard in these testimonies that were so packed with Scripture in these baptisms. Lord, thank You for the power of Your Word, and we trust Your Word, which is why do we go to it now, asking You to work powerfully in our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 24, we've got this great story of two followers of Jesus The morning Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 13 is where we'll start. That very day, the day Jesus rose from the dead, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Oh, my goodness. All right, already we've got a fascinating story. Are any fan, Columbo fans in here? Anybody watch the murder mystery Columbo? Yes? My, my daughter has become a huge fan of the show Monk. And Monk and Columbo are similar suspenseful murder mysteries but they have the same way of telling the story. And it's this. What's the first thing that happens in a Monk or Columbo episode? What happens? You watch the murderer commit the murder. And you think, well, where's the suspense in that? Where's, where's the enjoyment and discovery in that? Well, actually, it's fascinating to join with the detective as the detective figures out what you already know. Well, they're just stealing a way of telling a story from Luke. And that's exactly what's going on here. We know what the characters in the story don't know. That they're walking down the road confused and, as we'll see, really discouraged. And they 
are walking with Jesus himself and they don't know it yet, but we do. This is fun. So we're going to see them discover what we already know. You ready? Jesus himself drew near. Their eyes are kept from recognizing him, verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him. Now, I don't know for sure, but Jesus has an Aunt Mary, and her husband's name was Cleopas. This might not just be disciples of Jesus. This might be Jesus' aunt and uncle. They may be family. He, He really knows and cares about these people, and he comes alongside them. One of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, duh. Do you live under a rock? You need to get out more. Don't you know all the things that have been happening about Jesus? And it's Jesus they're talking to. Verse 19. And he said to them, What things? I find that really helpful and interesting. He says, What things are you talking about? Why would Jesus do that? It's not because he doesn't know the things they're talking about. He knows them better than anybody. They're talking about him, the events of his life. He's not asking for information he lacks. What's he doing? He's doing something incredibly gracious and patient and tender. And he's relating to them right where they are. He's saying, tell me what things. Rehearse it one more time. So you remind yourselves what it was you saw, what it was you heard, the way that your life was changed by Jesus. Recount it one more time. If there's anything in the Bible that's clear about human nature, it's that we're forgetful. And we need reminders desperately. That's one of the main reasons we practice baptisms. So we can go back and remember what we did when we were baptized. And we can watch baptisms and remember them. It's why we practice the Lord's Supper over and over and over again. You'd think after doing it 10 or 15 times, you'd say, okay, get the point. But no, we need reminders. And Jesus is saying, remind yourselves what you saw and heard. Take a moment here and remind yourselves. Go through it one more time. I love that he's working with them in that way. It's just beautiful. What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. I want you to notice this word hope is in what tense? What's the tense of hope? Past, present, or future? It's past. They are talking about past past tense hope. Their hope for them doesn't seem to be a present reality, but something in their past. We had hoped, but we seem to have run out of hope in the the light of the crucifixion. We had hoped. Now, I want you to realize how important this is, that they lack hope. Do you know the influence of psychology for, in some ways, I'm very helpful for what we've learned from psychology, but 
One of the effects, the, the heavy influence of psychology, starting with a heavy Freudian emphasis in our society, is a strong emphasis on what I'm feeling at the moment, what's going on inside of me, which are important things to think about. But what ends up happening is what's inside of me right now becomes reality. Reality you can't even question. Reality that is what's true and what's real. Even if it completely conflicts with what's actually real. I think this is one of the biggest problems of our day. Is a, a idolatry of my immediate experience in the moment. You could call it a hypervalidation of personal subjective internal experience. I, I so validate what's going on inside of me that to even question it is a horrible thing to do. Remember a student came uh, in, in light of something I had written uh, said, I was very offended by what you wrote. And we talked for two hours. And I really believe after two hours, he understood better what I wrote. He understood why I wrote it. And I think all along the way, it was making sense to him. And he was agreeing with what I was saying. And we got to the end of two hours and I said to him, okay, I know what I wrote offended you. But now after these two hours, let me ask you a question. Do you think you should be offended. And it was as if no one had ever asked him a question like that. Because we get offended or we feel something or experience something and then it's reality to us. And to question my reality, Oprah Winfrey has this phrase that's spreading like wildfire in our society right now. She says, live your truth. Live your truth. And that so resonates with people living your truth. But do you realize the problem with putting your before truth? Anytime you put anything before truth that qualifies it, we've got a different definition of truth, don't we? Your truth. What then happens when your truth clashes with mine? Is everybody's equally true? Is there something outside of us? that we understand to be true regardless of how we feel. And that's, that's why this word hope is so important. They've got past tense hope. It's something in the past for them. But the fact is, they have present tense hope that isn't matching up with their feelings. You know, words in the Bible like guilt and like peace and like hope, we hear those words in our culture and what do we immediately think of? A feeling. I feel hopeful. I feel peaceful. I feel guilty or not. But we need to start not with the feeling or lack thereof. We need to start with the objective reality because the fact is, if I'm guilty before a judge, it really doesn't matter how I feel. If I have peace with God through Christ, that's not first and foremost a feeling I have. That's a standing I have before a judge that has said I'm not guilty because of Jesus anymore. And now I am at peace. It's as if God has called a truce because of the blood of Jesus. And now my job is to get my feelings of peacefulness in line with what God has said is true, that I'm at peace with him. We're not at war anymore. See how different it is than we tend to think? We tend to think things like peace and guilt and hope are primarily internal realities. They're not. We have hope in Christ. Whether you feel it or not is not the essential thing. The whole job of the Christian in a very fundamental way is to align my feelings and my behavior 
with what God says is true. And we have been given complete permission to live according to what we feel is true in the moment rather than what God says is true. It's the same problem human beings have had since the Garden of Eden when we rebelled against God the first time and demanded that we determine good and evil for ourselves. We don't give that to God as his prerogative. It becomes ours. And this, this is the source of tragedy. Just like the brother was talking about, check into people's lives who live according to, to murky or no good understanding of truth, and you'll see the devastating effects it has on lives. And so they, they had past tense hope. But the fact is, the one who brings hope is right there with them. And that's true right now. It's not just true for these disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's true for us right now. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, ever. That's what he said as he ascended. Never. I'll never leave you or, or forsake you. And that means Jesus is here with us now, as he is with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus is here and he was with them. All they needed, the hopes and fears of all the years were with them in that moment, yet they only had past tense hope. Now the job Jesus has is to bring their past tense hope into the present because the hope of the world is right there in their midst, just like right now. We had hope he was the one to redeem, to buy back from slavery, Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Verse 22, moreover... Some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, and by the way, let me just pause right here. Who does he say was at the tomb early in the morning? The women. Again, if anyone says that the Bible is anti-women, they must not have read it. Over and over again, the women in the Bible are stars. They're shining stars. They're heroic they're servant-hearted. They're helpful. They're the first ones to the tomb. They're the ones at the foot of the cross, except for John. He's the only apostle who's at the foot of the cross with all those other women. He must have felt like he walked into a very troubling women's conference or something. There he is at the foot of the cross. And here they are again, the women, shining like stars. Some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Every time I've ever read that verse, I say, and Lord, why then do we not have that sermon written down for us? Right here would be a great place to have put it. He didn't. I think maybe no preacher would have ever wanted to preach again. They would just say, here, read that. That's the best sermon possible. Jesus preaching about where he is through the whole Hebrew scriptures. Now what? Watch. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, again, drawing 
responses from them. Not just providing everything, but drawing it out of them with this interesting little head fake that he gives here. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And he was, when he was at table with them, listen, so far they don't know it's Jesus. He was at table with them and what happens? He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then either maybe they saw the nail-scarred hands when he broke the bread. Maybe they remembered the Last Supper where he broke bread and said, this is my body. But most certainly because the Holy Spirit decided now is the moment. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. This is a phenomenal story. Seriously, listen to this. This is just as good as it gets. He vanishes from their sight. And here's what's interesting to me. If I were in that moment, I would say, where, where do you go? Hey, what are you doing? Don't, don't just take off like this. Get over here. What, why, we just figured it out and you leave. No, they don't seem to be miffed that he vanished. They saw him for who he is and I suppose allowed it to him to determine how he was going to continue to reveal himself. And listen to what they say. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11. So the 11 apostles, minus Judas, right? are cowering in a corner, hiding. But now they've all discovered that Jesus rose from the dead. And they, they burst in the room. And I think before the two can get out their story, the 11 cut them off and first say, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then the two say, then they told the two what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Beautiful foreshadowing of the the ongoing reminder of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, but they saw him and it changed their lives. It changed everything for the rest of their lives. Their grief, their disillusionment, their disappointment, their longing was satisfied, was dispelled, was taken care of in Jesus. And the first point I want you to realize is the radical nature of the Christian faith is that the leader of the Christian faith is alive. You can't overstate the importance of that. The leader of the Christian faith is alive 2,000 years later. You can't say that about any other world religion. The Buddha is in the ground. Muhammad is in the ground. Leaders like Gandhi are in the ground. One day Oprah and Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders will all be in the ground. They'll all be dead. And then what? What will we do? Jesus is alive. He's a risen Savior. And the reality of the resurrection is this hallmark of the Christian faith that radically differentiates it from every other, Christ, every other religion in the world. The reality and power of the resurrection. Jesus told us it would happen. There's abundant historical evidence for the reality of the resurrection. And it's not just something we have to believe. It's a Savior to be trusted. He's still alive. We still trust Him. He's a Lord that we obey. 
This is a power to be experienced. This is a hope to be lived out every day. A Christian is someone who's beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ and is never the same. And God changes that person to be a new creature in Christ so that you can't look back. You can't unbecome what you've become now. You're a child of God. And that is an indelible reality in your life now. And it's because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised you to life. That's what happens. It's nothing short of a spiritual resurrection every time someone trusts Christ. And and the problem we can have with that is it can look so mundane and and just normal and simple like a five-year-old girl kneeling with her mom next to the bed and and saying a a beautiful expression of repentance and trust in in, in Christ. It can look gradual over time. It can, it's usually embedded in normal life. It's usually not dramatic, although it is for some, but it, it looks so normal. But it means you're alive when you are dead. There's no reason to deny the resurrection historically, archaeologically, rationally. Now, the only reason I know that people come and deny the resurrection that has credibility, I think, is that you come to the resurrection with a worldview that doesn't allow for it you decide ahead of time that people don't rise from the dead. And, and I understand that. You may have good reasons for that presupposition, but let's not say you deny the resurrection because of historical reasons or even scientific reasons. You can't test whether the resurrection happened in some scientific way. The resurrection is incredibly trustworthy historically and archaeologically and experientially. The only reason the church exists at all is because Jesus rose from the dead. If he never rose from the dead, those disciples would have still been cowering in a corner until their death. But every one of them, except the Apostle John, died a martyr's death because they believed Jesus rose from the dead. And so you can't even explain the church apart from it. And, and that's historically and factually, but, but theologically, what we have in the resurrection is the Father saying of the Son, yes. Everything Jesus is and did was sufficient and authentic and accomplished everything I wanted it to. It's the Father's stamp of approval on what Jesus did. It vindicated what he did. It showed his sacrifice was accepted and a full atonement was made. The resurrection is an awesome truth that changes the Christian life. And then there's another thing I want to mention here too that Luke ends his gospel with and begins the book of Acts with, and it's the ascension. The ascension's a vital doctrine of the Christian faith because you know other people rose from the dead, right? It wasn't just Jesus. People in the Old Testament were raised from the dead by prophets. We're told that on Jesus' day he died, tombs were open and people rose from the dead. Remember, one of the last major miracles Jesus did was what? To raise Lazarus from the dead. So other people had been resurrected, But do you realize this radical difference between all those resurrections and Jesus' resurrection? He never died again. Imagine going to Lazarus' second funeral. It must have been a real bummer. Jesus only had one funeral. He didn't need another one because when he came out of the tomb, he never died again. And when Jesus said goodbye to his disciples and also said, I'll never leave you, he ascended and said, the angel says this Jesus is coming back in the same way you saw him go. The ascension means Jesus stayed alive and stayed human and divine. And that means right now Jesus has a ministry in our life. He's not just some historical figure who gave his life for us like a Marine who dove on a grenade to save our lives. Oh, isn't that virtuous of him? No, he rose from the dead, which means he's a living Lord right now. 
right now. He's alive and he's interceding for us. He's, he's our advocate before the throne. He pleads our case. He ministers on our behalf at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back one day. And our lives now are framed between that first coming of Jesus and the second coming when he comes as a judge and makes all things new one day. The resurrection's an awesome doctrine. I have a friend who, his name was, his name is Chon, and uh, he's, a, he's from Mexico, and, and I got to know him one day, and I said, hey, Chon, is, is that your given name or is that a nickname? And he said, it's a nickname for people who have my given name. And I said, what's your given name? And he said, Ascension. I said, Ascension? You mean like the Ascension? He said, yeah. I said, the Ascension of Jesus? He said, yeah, exactly. And I got so pumped standing there in my backyard talking to my friend. I said, you, you're named after a doctrine in the Bible? That's fantastic. I said, I mean, other ethnicities, they'll name their kids after people in the Bible, Sarah and Isaac, you know? But how cool that people in Hispanic backgrounds name their kids after entire doctrines in the Bible. Like the Ascension, my next door neighbor, and then I thought, my next door neighbor, her name is Esperanza. Her, her, nick, her, her maiden name was Esperanza de la Cruz. Hope of the Cross. How could you possibly have a better name than that? You can't. She named David Revere, so now she's David of the, uh, 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 Espy of the River. Maybe it's the Jordan River. I don't know. But uh, her maiden name was better. It, it, um, but I, I just love that. And the ascension is worth naming your kid after. Because it assures us that Jesus is still human and divine. He's still alive and he's coming back one day. And he's ministering to us right now. And so this resurrection, this ascension means what Jesus did is sufficient. Listen to Romans 6.5. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That means... Like this baptism indicates, we die with Christ. We're unified with him by faith. We, we die with him as if his death is our death. His sacrifice is our sacrifice. And then the Bible says we are raised to walk in newness of life. And we can now have a kind of life that's qualitatively better and deeper and more life-filled than the life we had before. The Bible describes the difference so starkly that we say we're said to be dead in our transgressions and sins, spiritually dead. And we can be alive now in a new way. And you know, it's amazing. I'll see a Christian sometimes, and I won't even know the person. And I'll go up to him at a train station. I'll say, you're a Christian, aren't you? And nine times out of ten in my life, they've said, yeah, how'd you know? I can just tell. There's life in those eyes. There's life in your life. I can tell. Actually, actually, it's more than 9 out of 10. It's probably 9.8 out of 10 that I can just tell. It's amazing. There's life that I want everybody here to have if you don't have it in this life, but also eternal life. There's eternal life that's ours in Christ. We're raised with him. He is what the Bible says is the first fruits in all of this. When Jesus said it's finished, he really meant it. The resurrection is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit saying, Amen. Christ has done it. It was sufficient. Here's what else I want you to know, and here's how we get to the theme of this summer. Do you see what Jesus did when he wanted them to know who he was? Think about this. Discouraged, confused, bewildered, sad followers, possibly even family members, and he comes to them, and he wants them, obviously, to feel better. Again, getting that inward aligned with the reality out, out of them. And so he wants them to feel good, but he doesn't rush it. Oh, do you know 
what we save people with is what we save them to. If we take shortcuts in bringing people to an understanding of God, they'll end up with a shortcut kind of faith. Jesus is patient to get them where he wants them to go in the best way. Think about this. This is stunning. The resurrected Lord of the universe is standing there with these discouraged disciples and he clearly loves them and cares for them and wants them to understand who he is, but he's going to get there the way he needs to get there. Not the way I would have gotten there. If these are my friends and I cared about them and I wanted them to feel happy and joyful and hopeful, I would have rushed to it. Especially if I were Jesus in this scene, I would have come running down the road. No, not running. I would have just appeared in front of them like Jesus could have. And I would have said, don't be sad. I'm alive. I'm alive. You don't believe it, do you? Watch. I'll uh, I'll, uh, find a blind man and help. No, I'll just make you blind and I'll make you see. And I'll turn stones to bread and I'll blow you away with my glory I had in the Mount of Transfiguration. No, he doesn't do any of that. Not the miraculous, not the impressive, not the quick. What does he do? Did you notice his M.O.? How does he get them to understand who he is? It's amazing. Look what he does, verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's pointing them to the prophets. He was the ultimate prophet. He points them to the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and earn his glory? And then look what he does. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that is his pattern. Look at verse 32. If, if we go to the end, what do they remember? They don't remember a miracle he did to show them. Even if they did see the nail scars in the hands, that's not what they talk about. What do they talk about in verse 32? They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he, look, opened to us the scriptures. Look at verses 44 and 45 after he gets with the rest of the disciples. Look, these are my words that I spoke to while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then what does he do? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Is that amazing? What did the risen Lord of the universe do when he wanted his followers to understand who he was? He had a Bible study. He... he, kind of did what we're doing right now, what you've been doing on Wednesday nights, what you do every time you get together on Sunday, what you do when you get in your grace groups, you open the Bible. It becomes the means of seeing Jesus primarily as the spirit who inspired it works in our hearts. Oh, this is so encouraging to me to stay in the scriptures. Jesus himself, the word in flesh, has a Bible study. He opens the word for them and he has a Bible study. That's just so encouraging to stay in the word, to trust the word. Jesus himself used that method. That's why I love these testimonies. They were packed with scripture, just scripture all over the place. The Bible's so important. It's the means we understand these things. And and listen, this is how the other apostles saw it too. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them, he says this to the religious leaders, that you think you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, the scriptures you study, they're about me, Jesus says. He says to Cornelius in Acts 10, that to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him and receives forgiveness of sins through his name 
The scriptures are about Jesus. Now, this does not mean we find some allegorical, creative, speculative connection between everything we find in the Old Testament and the New. But what it does mean is every time we read the Bible, every time we say, how does this point me to Jesus? How does this foreshadow Jesus? How does this show me my need for Jesus? How does this point to the gospel, the good news that Jesus brings us? It means we're always thinking, how does this point us to Christ? Not in some fanciful way, but in a way that Jesus himself is modeling here in this sermon he gives. Oh, and what a sermon. Imagine. Imagine when these two burst in the room and the 11 say, he appeared to Simon, he's alive. And then they say, well, you don't know nothing. Listen, listen to this. He actually preached a sermon to us. Not only did we get to be with him, but we got to hear him preach a sermon and he filled in all the gaps of our understanding of who he is. Do you know he was there even at creation? You know how the whole Bible starts in Genesis 1 in the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth. Well, Jesus was there. He's there as the spirit hovered over the waters. The son is the creator and sustainer God with the father and the spirit. Oh, do you remember right in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God? And God says, oh, a seed of the woman is coming and he will crush the head of the serpent, though you'll bruise his heel. The solution, Jesus was that solution. And then he, he must have gone through the whole Old Testament hitting on these high points of all the places. Remember when Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, but God provided a substitute sacrifice. Do you remember the Passover lamb? where they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the angel of death passed over. That lamb and all the other lambs that were ever sacrificed were just pointing us to Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember the law? Jesus fulfills it. Remember all the priests who offered those sacrificial lambs? They all point to Jesus. It was all about him all along. Oh, do do you remember all the times the prophets, the priests, the kings came and ministered? They were just getting us ready for Jesus, the king and the prophet and the priest. The one who fulfills it all. And do you remember how we could never figure out how in the world the Messiah was going to be both this suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who's like a lamb led to the slaughter, and at the same time, somehow, the ruling, reigning son of man of Daniel 7? We couldn't reconcile those? Well, it's because Jesus came and died for our sins on the cross, and he's coming again. And the clouds and all the nations will worship him, and our job is to preach him until he comes. What an amazing sermon that they heard from him. And what we finally find here is the Holy Spirit transforms us as the Word of God and the Spirit God of God come together and change our hearts. That's what happens. The, the Spirit transforms us. He takes the knowledge of Scripture and makes it devotion in our hearts that sets a fire in our hearts. Did you hear what they say? Did our hearts not burn within us? Not while he did all these fancy miracles, but while he preached the Scriptures to us. That's when our hearts burned. That's when we had a subjective experience that was with aligning with God's objective word. See, that's how it works. We align ourselves with what God says is true, and then we have right affections that flow from that. And it changes us and it frames our whole lives. And this heart change leads to passion for Christ. It leads to devotion to Christ. It leads to an ability to get through the hardest things in life. I had an amazing student years ago. There are all these great Biola people out here. I just love my students who are sitting out here. And and it's it's just fantastic. But um, I could tell you lots of stories about lots of them to impress you with how great they are. But they might not like that. But listen. I, my, I had a student, Emily, who, who had cystic fibrosis, and 
Emily was an amazing woman, and I had her in class when she was really struggling her junior year at Biola, and, and Emily was an avid surfer, and it was harder and harder for her to do that, but, but she would bring her oxygen tank to class and her mask and have to leave sometimes to go clean out her lungs, and it was just brutal. It kind of made it hard when other students would come and say, uh, I'm sorry, I can't make the exam. My roommate has, needs a ride to the airport, or I had a cold, and, and so there's Emily, though, with cystic fibrosis, and, and Emily graduated from Biola, and then a few years later, this, the CF really uh, took over, and, and Emily was dying in the hospital, and uh, it was just incredible to read what, what Emily and her mom were writing. Listen to what she says, what, what Emily's mother says, as Emily's dying in the hospital. It was clear that she was frightened about her current state. I told her we have to be patient with all the tubes, wires, and machines around her. I told her we have not left her side and will never give up hope that she would come back. I know she was understanding every word. She nodded and gestured throughout and made clear-eyed contact. How amazing to be able to have such communication. She pointed, listen to Emily as she's dying. She pointed and wanted me to read Bible verses posted around her room. Later, she pointed, asking me to read the verse again. When I saw how much she loved hearing the verses, I picked up a Bible and told her I would read some other verses. She tried to pick it up herself to find what she wanted to hear. I guessed it might be one of the most important verses to her in Jeremiah, and she nodded yes, and I read it to her. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. After she heard this verse, she relaxed and fell asleep. She knows she's in the thick of the heat and must not fear. Even in her weakest moment, Emily is showing us all how to have faith. And I'm so glad I got to sit awake all night so I could be reminded of this tonight. Thank you, Emily. So as, as her daughter's dying, Emily is pointing her to the Bible. I need to ask you a really hard question. When you're dying, what will be your hope? Today, what is your hope? What is, what is the truth you cling to in your desperate moments? It's easy when you don't feel desperate to just cruise along on slogans on motivational speeches, but what's the anchor of your life that gives you a solution to even that final enemy called death? Here this young lady is dying and she's clinging to the Word of God as her hope. The Word of God is our hope because the Word of God points us to Jesus. And no matter where you are in your life, there is hope and God pursues wayward sinners and loves wayward sinners. You know, I read this verse hundreds, this passage hundreds of times in my life before I noticed this verse that I'll end with right now. As they come in, look what it says in verse 34. The Lord has risen indeed, and this is what I missed for years, and has appeared to Simon. Simon? Who's Simon? It's Peter. Who was Peter? Oh, he was the one who denied Jesus three times after boasting he never would. And it seems that when Jesus rose from the dead, right near the top of his list of things to do was go find Peter. Clearly not to say, how could you get out of my sight? 
but to say, Peter, it's going to be okay. I'm alive. Your sins are forgiven. Come on home. And that's, that's what this whole series this summer has been about. That's what is preached at Grace constantly. That's what this church, that's what the Christian faith is all about. Coming on home. Coming home to the God who made us for himself and sent his son to die in our place so we could turn from our sin in repentance and trust him in saving faith. And then everything's new. He not only gives you a clean slate, he gives you the righteousness of his son and abundant life and eternal life. And it, it couldn't be more simple. You say no to sin and self and yes to Jesus and his sacrifice and his righteousness. Oh, there are people all around you if you've never trusted Jesus. This is the evening to do that. If you've never trusted him, this is the night to do it. He's a risen savior. We know him according to the scriptures. That's why we have life when we go to his word. And he changes our lives. He gives us new life. Oh, it's a good day to be alive in Christ.